Well, what a passage, right? A lot of stuff going on in this passage, and before we get to it, I have a confession I have to make. One, I sound like I'm in a tunnel. Am I? Okay. A little bit like a tunnel. That's all right. Just don't go to the light, right? <laughs> so, I have a confession to make. This, is, this has been weighing so heavily on me, Matt. So heavily. I am the one that broke the pulpit. I kept meaning to tell you and I forgot about it. So this little cup holder here, that was me. <laughs> I, was, I was moving some stuff and a stand fell and broke it off. So anyways, there you go. There's my confession. I'm very grateful though that you figured out something. <sighs> now I can take communion with you guys later. That's good. Thanks. And with that, how about we pray? That's a good idea. Well, Father, I thank you for, thank you for this time. God, I thank you for this family, God, this specific representation of your family, God. Thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here. God, I thank you for the gift that it is to be joined with them in your name. God, so I ask now that with the reading of your word and, and with the preaching of your message, God, that you would be glorified. God, I ask that you would open our hearts, you would open our ears, open our eyes to see, to hear, and to accept your truth. God, would you cause us to grow in deeper love with you? God, and those that are here who may not be saved, God, would you rip away the veil of blindness this morning? God, do your work of salvation in their hearts. God, I ask now that you would, you would be with me. God, I feel my weakness this morning. God, I feel my, my, my lack of worth in your presence. God, so would you, in my weakness, would you fill me? Would you make me strong? God, and speak your word this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. So what's the context here of this verse? So last week we saw uh, Luke was, was showing us that... Um, there was a blind, or not a blind man, a crippled man, right? And before even that yet, though, uh, Luke has been, has been chronicling this explosive growth of the early church. In, in Acts chapter 1, he tells us that there was 120 believers. And then a little bit later in Acts chapter 2, he's, he says that there's 3,000 believers. So the question is, where is this early church gathering? They don't have a church building, this is the early church, right? They didn't, they didn't have the idea yet of going and asking some school if they could use their gym. That wasn't a thing. So where did they meet? The only place they knew to meet for religious things, the temple, okay? So then as they're at the temple, Peter and John are walking in and they see this, this lame man who was a beggar. And he had been a beggar and a lame man for as long as anyone could remember. Everyone knew he was lame and then everyone knew that he was healed because what did he do? He leapt up and he started praising God. Everyone knew that he couldn't do that. Everyone in the temple knew that. So then after that, Peter then goes in and he preaches this great sermon. He preaches this gospel news. And along with that, 
he, he indicts the Jews and the leaders of the Jews for killing the promised Messiah, this Messiah that they had been waiting for and waiting for and waiting for. He said, you killed him in the middle of the temple. Okay, let's let that simmer a little bit as we think about this. But he didn't stop there, did he? No, he, he said, you killed him, but if you repent, if you turn from your sin, you will be saved. The results of that sermon was staggering. In Acts, in Acts 4 here, in this, verse, in this uh, passage that we read this morning, it says in chapter uh, verse 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So in Acts 1, we saw 120 believers. Acts 2, we saw 3,000 believers. And now here in Acts 4, it says 5,000, except for the, there's a little bit of a difference here in this time. Okay, so oftentimes when, when we hear man or mankind in the Bible, we all recognize that it's not talking about specifically the gender men, right? It's talking about the general mankind. So it includes women, it includes children. This time, however, the word man actually means man. It actually means 5,000 men. So 120 mankind, 3,000 of mankind, and then 5,000 men. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us we don't know the exact number because what about the women? If we add the women in there, we don't know, 10,000, 15,000? A huge, explosive number of believers came to true saving faith and were gathered at the temple of the Jews, okay? So there's this huge gathering now in the temple of the people who had just crucified Jesus. Are you getting where we're going here? There's a problem, isn't there? By believing the gospel, these 5,000 men and however many women by believing in this gospel that Peter had just preached, they were directly and openly in the middle of their own seat of power saying, the leaders, you messed up. You got it wrong. So that's where we see here then, this isn't a fringe group anymore. This isn't some small offset group of crazy weirdos. This is now a growing movement. And it's growing really fast. Really, really fast. It's a problem to their authority. It's a problem to the authority of the Jewish leaders. So who are our players then in here? In verse 1 we saw uh, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. So who are they? Well, we've got the priests. The priests were the day-to-day operators the ones who carried out the daily functions of the temple. So they were offering the sacrifices. They were doing all of those day-to-day things that the temple needed to have done. And then we've got the, the captain of the temple. Now, the captain of the temple was uh, best described as sort of like a policeman, okay? So they were, in Ro- they were uh, under Roman control. And the one thing that, that history shows is that Rome was very, very lax with the places that it conquered. It was very uh, open to whatever might happen, but the one thing they would not tolerate is disorder and uprising. 
They could not tolerate it. And so we have this policeman here, the captain of the temple in the middle of, in the middle of the temple because we don't want to take off Rome, right? We don't want there to be any disorder here. Otherwise, they'll come in and do things. We don't want that. We want them to leave us alone. And for the most part, they would. Okay, then we have the Sadducees. The Sadducees, they ruled over all of that then. So you've got the priests, the captain of the temple, and then the Sadducees who were in charge. They were the ones who made the decisions. So they had to do something. These leaders, the priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, we see here in verse 1 through 2, or verse 1 through 3, sorry, we see that they had to do something. They had to act. There was this growing movement. It was a challenge, a direct challenge to their own authority. They had to act. So let's read here in verse 1 through 3. And as they were speaking to the people, who's they? It was Peter, John, all of the Christians. As they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So did anyone else, did anyone else get a little bit tripped up by the greatly annoyed part? It seems a little bit out of, out of character, maybe. Like, you don't arrest people when you're greatly annoyed. You're like, hey, I'm greatly annoyed, right? So greatly, under, greatly annoyed here, the, the, the actual root words behind that, this is the understatement of the year here to say greatly annoyed. Greatly annoyed is when I've got a mosquito buzzing in my ear who won't leave me alone, okay? This is not saying that. This is saying greatly annoyed equals when you are so agitated when whatever is going on around you is, is affecting you so much that you are in mental pain. It is causing you anguish. Okay, so it would be like if I were to say, I came home last night and I was, I was greatly annoyed to find out that my house had been burgled. It was greatly annoying. Right? No, I would be in anguish over this. And that is, that's what we're seeing here. So the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them in anguish because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus. So why? Why were they bothered? I think I've already hinted at this. We've got somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 Christians gathered in their temple teaching their people that they are bad. Okay, so we can see why this is a problem. So imagine then today, just take this one step further, imagine what would happen today if we got 10,000 of us or so and we all went to a temple and we said, hey guys, let's have a Bible class on the New Testament. It's not gonna go over well, right? This is a problem. This isn't your place to be teaching. These aren't your people to be teaching. This isn't your authority. It's ours. They were greatly annoyed that some commoners from Galilee were doing this in their place. This is their house. So it wasn't just that they were teaching, though. It wasn't just the fact that they were there in their authority that they said they didn't have. 
It was what they were teaching. They were teaching Jesus was the Messiah. You called him an imposter, but he was the Messiah. This was an open and public rejection of the entire Jewish leadership. In the temple. <laughs> I, don't want, I want us to really, really point that out because this is in the temple that this happened. This was a big deal. You denounced Christ as an imposter. You were wrong. In Acts 3, so we get what they did. They were afraid of losing their power. power. What to do? What are they going to do? Acts verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 3. Then they arrested them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So thousands of true believers were more than false religion could handle. Okay, so we can handle 120, 3,000, okay, what's going on? We're at a point now, we can't, we can't take it anymore, we have to act. And so we get to see here then, this morning, we see the very first beginnings of the persecution of believers and of the church. And so when we think of persecution, what is it that we think of? Naturally, our minds want to jump we want to jump to, to a gruesome death, right? We want to jump to uh, the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Have, has, anyone, has anyone read Fox's Book of Martyrs? It's incredible. You, I, I doubt you'll be able to read the whole thing, <laughs> but even reading parts of it is just amazing because we have these stories in this book of these amazing believers who, in the face of extreme persecution, in extreme physical pain, cast themselves on the power of Jesus, and they say, no, I have to. You tell me to reject Jesus, and I can't. I will not recant. So that's what we think of. We think of persecution. We think of beatings. We think of hangings. We think of beheadings, burning at the stake. We don't think of that happening today, right? Like that, was, that was back in the old days. Except for that's not true. The reality is there is always going to be persecution until the end of time, until Jesus comes back, there's going to be persecution of Christians. Why? Simple. Satan hates God. Satan hates Christians. There is going to be persecution. He cannot stand by true believers. We see it all throughout history, beginning here in Acts 4 and then continuing on, continuing on today, over 2,000 years. And so some of you may have even heard stories of persecution in third world countries, right? Like over in, in North Korea or in the uh, whatever, whatever country it might be. We hear of these stories of true believers who are persecuted by, by the government, by uh, Islamic extremists. We hear all of these things, right? But that doesn't happen in the United States, does it? Like, there's no persecution here. To that rhetorical question, I ask another one. Have you ever tried being a Christian baker? Doesn't go well if you're asked to do a gay wedding and make a cake for them. And you refuse. 
What happens? You're persecuted for it. You're persecuted by the government by getting fines for discrimination and hate. You're persecuted on social media the most where you get completely and totally torn apart and chances are good your business is closing. It's not always going to happen. Chances are good. Okay, but that, that's way out in like Chicago, New York, right? That's not here. Some of you may have already heard this story. Uh, I hadn't. And in my research, I was, this, this really worked out well for the sermon. That's what I want to say. So in 2015, ABC 57 in South Bend, our local news channel, reported that a pizzeria in Walkerton, Indiana, which is just about 30 minutes west of Bremen, they reported that this pizzeria would refuse to cater a gay wedding if they were asked to. And what happened next? Public outrage. Public outrage over them just saying, if hypothetically this would happen. It didn't happen. There was no gay couple who would come to them and ask if they would cater pizza at their wedding. The resulting backlash forced them to close their doors temporarily because they were getting death threats, including one that threatened to burn the whole place down. So yes, persecution happens. It happens today, it happens in the United States, and it happens right here in our local area. That's on a grand scale. Satan hates God. Satan hates Christians. And hatred doesn't follow logic. So where's the logic in this public outrage There is none, because they're saying, how dare you hate gay people? I hate you. What? There's no logic there. Well, don't expect it to. It's hatred. Why would there be logic? So we have have persecution. It equals physical persecution that we we tend to think of at first, and it, it also can be a lot more subtle. It can be in social persecution, fear of losing your standing, fear of losing friends. So how are we to react then? What is, what is it that we're called to do? How do we react to persecution? Well, I think Peter here gave us a really good guideline for what we're to do. First of all, in verse 3, we see that when they were arrested, they argued that they were assembled peacefully, right? No. no. Some of you guys were not really catching on. So, no, they did not argue that they were assembled peacefully. They weren't saying, what? what? This is a peaceful gathering. We're not causing any problems. Why are you arresting us? No, they didn't. They didn't try to shift the focus to something else. They didn't try to shift the focus to, hey, I heard that, you remember that Barabbas guy you let go? I heard maybe he's about to go commit some more murders. 
No, they didn't shift the focus. They didn't try to find common theological ground and saying, look at all the ways we're the same. We both believe God is God. Why isn't that enough? No. So what did they do? They placed themselves within God's sovereignty because they recognized either he reigns over all circumstances and that we trust him or he doesn't and we don't. Either he reigns and we trust him or he doesn't reign and we don't trust him. There is no middle ground there. Either he causes something that was meant for evil to be turned for good or he doesn't. There is no middle ground. Am I, am I making that clear? There is no middle ground. It either is or it isn't. Choose. So what did they do? They submit. They submitted to the authority and the will of God. Because they knew, they recognized where they were at in God's sovereign plan. They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know what, what would happen next, but they knew that God was good, they knew that God was in control, and they knew that God had a plan. So how is it that we're to submit? One, we see here, don't be combative. Don't fight, don't resist. Don't shift the focus, don't compromise. Accept it as God-ordained. God caused this to happen. It's in his plan for you to accept persecution. We see this in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire, this is Paul speaking, by the way, about his own persecutions. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is ordained by God. It is planned by God. We can see it again in 1 Peter 4.12. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Why are you surprised? This isn't strange. This is expected. Why is it expected? We see in John 15.19-20. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Satan hates God. Therefore, Satan hates Christians, and therefore the world hates Christians. Expect persecution and hatred because you aren't part of the world. It only loves what falls in line with itself. So my, just a little challenge here. Be worried a little bit if the world loves you. There is some ground for worry if the world loves you. What do we do next? First, we're to submit to the persecution. We accept it as God-ordained plan. What do we do next? So let's read here in uh, verse 5 through 6 in Acts 4. 
On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. So who are these people? Who is Annas? Who is Caiaphas? So Annas was, they they called him here the high priest, but in reality, he was actually the ex-high priest. So it's very similar to how we would still call President Obama, President Obama, okay? He still retains that title even though he doesn't have the position. So this is high priest, ex-high priest, Annas, along with his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who is the current high priest. And then there's some speculation, we don't know for sure, but based on how the translations were, were, kind of came through, there's some speculation that John and Alexander were sons of ex-high priest Annas. We don't know that for sure, but there is some speculation there. There's a little bit of backing behind that. So what do we have? We have the ex-high priest, his son-in-law, and then possibly the ex-high priest's two sons. We have a powerhouse, an oligarchy, if you will, a family-run high priest Sanhedrin. It's a little scary. The high priest was appointed by the Romans. So what does that mean about Annas and Caiaphas? means that to some level they were complicit with Roman rule, which means to some level they were betraying their own people. And it also means they really did not want to get Romans upset because they were appointed by the Romans to be the high priests. So this powerhouse, the Sanhedrin, was gathered. There's 71 people, 71 members who make up the Sanhedrin. So it's not just this tiny little group of people. It is a large spread group of Jewish leaders who had all the authority and all the power and the backing of the Romans. So in this situation then, what is Peter's response? He's already submitted. They've been arrested. They've been jailed. They've been in jail all night. What is his response? Verse 7, it says, And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? Verse 8, Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, and let's stop right there. What's, what was Peter's second response? To be filled with the Holy Spirit. How? So how is it that we are filled by the Holy Spirit? What is it that causes us to be filled? 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And then the peace that everyone knows, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So how are we filled in the Holy Spirit? How? You don't trust in your own strength. You don't want to be relying in this moment when you're surrounded by powerful people who are accusing you, you don't want to rely on your own impressions. You don't want to rely on your own wisdom Because compared to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, compared to the strength of the Holy Spirit, you have none. 
So in recognizing that and in submitting yourself to the persecution, submitting yourself to God-ordained plan, recognizing that the situation is bigger than you, it's beyond your wisdom, it's beyond your control, you recognize then that God is sovereignly orchestrating events and we trust him. And when we trust him, we find ourselves to be weak because we compare ourselves to him. And when we find ourselves to be weak, then we yield to the Holy Spirit and we're filled with his strength. So first, Peter shows us that we are to submit to God's plan. Then we're to recognize our weakness and be filled with his strength. What do we do next? And this is where we're going to land for a little while. Verse 7 through 12, the third response to persecution. In verse 7, let's read that again. And, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And I just have to imagine what Peter's thoughts were there. So he's been arrested. He's submitted. He's willing to accept God's plan. And then they come and ask him this question. How did this happen? I can just imagine he's like, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. I'm so glad you asked, right? Because he recognized this is an opportunity to share the gospel to a group of people who would be impossible to share it all at once with them unless you were on trial for something. Unless you were on trial, you were not talking to them all at once. So this God-ordained plan in submission to persecution is the very situation that put Peter in a position to be able to preach the gospel to these Jewish leaders. How amazing is that? Let's read on in verse, verse 8. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? I'm going to pause there. So he doesn't just preach the gospel. First, he's got to, he's got to dig in a little bit. Because he's first going to point out, so you're, you're wanting to ask me, about healing this crippled man on trial after having been arrested and you're asking me how this man was healed. A good thing. This trial is unjust. <laughs> That's the first thing he says. This trial is not just. You are not, you have arrested me under false pretenses. I recognize that and I'm going to point it out to you. Then he goes on. He says, so if this, is, if this is what you are asking, if you're wondering how this good deed happened, let me tell you this good thing that happened. Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all people, all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So you want to know how it was done? Jesus. You remember Jesus, the one that you killed? <laughs> I love this. This is boldness. 
This is boldness in proclaiming the gospel. So that's the third thing we're called to do. We first submit to God's plan. We're then filled by his Holy Spirit and given strength. And then all of that leads to the submission, filling with strength, filling with the Holy Spirit, leads us then to boldly proclaim the gospel. Not meekly. Not watering it down, clearly. Peter sure didn't. Then he goes on to, in verse 12, the last verse in our passage today, and says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Boldly preach the gospel. Now, if we back up and we think about this, let's, let's apply a little bit of our modern logic to the situation here. So, they probably could have been released if they had just said something like, my bad, sorry, didn't get a permit for the gathering, uh, won't happen again, we'll make sure to run it by you next time, right? Probably could have been released. Or, or if they had decided, you know what, hey, so Sadducees, I know you guys don't believe in the resurrection, like at all, not just that Jesus re- resurrected. I know you don't believe in the resurrection at all, so we just won't talk about that part. Is that, does that work? We're going to strip away the most, the most uh, offensive parts of our message, and then we'll go on continuing to preach that Jesus died for our sins, uh, and that if we trust in him, you know, we'll be, all will be good. But we won't talk about the resurrection. They could have done that. Might have, might have got him off, might have gotten him away. No, they didn't do that. They could have said, we'll find some other strategy to be accepted. You know, we don't want to alienate everybody. Surely there's a message that we can preach that applies to all people and doesn't offend anyone. No, no. Peter did not do that. Why? Because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was in control. He wasn't operating under his own strength anymore. The message was going to come out, period. He didn't water it down because the audience had power. He didn't water it down so that he could mark up on some bulletin board somewhere how many thousands of people were saved. He proclaimed the complete and full exclusivity of the gospel to a room full of powerful religious people. Verse 12, there is no salvation in anyone else, no other name. You killed him, and he is your only source of salvation. So what do we see today? We see the same kind of things happening. Christians who are struggling to reconcile this doctrine of salvation being exclusive. There is no other way. but that makes people feel bad. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Ooh, that made me feel bad too. (coughs) Makes people feel bad, right? Especially today in our culture when we have this idea that everything has to be inclusive, everything has to be loving, 
Everything has to make everyone feel good and everyone can have their own truth. So who are you to say that my truth or your truth is better than any other truth? Because it's all about inclusiveness. It's all about one global community. So there's some fantastic premises there, but they take it way too far. It's because our culture hates the idea of exclusivity right now. Not just of the salvation, not just of the gospel. Exclusive things, period, our culture hates. You see this in, in the Occupy Wall Street movement that happened. What was, what was the hatred there? We are the 99%. You're the 1% and you're exclusive and we hate you, right? We see it in this hatred of the idea that marriage is exclusive. It can't possibly be exclusive. We hate it. And anyone who supports it, we hate them too. And now there's this really growing sentiment that gender cannot be exclusive. Gender has to be inclusive. So it's not just the gospel. It's not just salvation that our world is hating. It's anything exclusive. And when you say something as powerful as eternal Damnation is on the line here, and there's an exclusive way to get saved from that. That does not go over well. I have a, I have a quote here from a lady by the name of Susan Strauss, who's an ordained minister and was an, the interim director for a couple years at an interfaith organization in Sacramento. And she shared during an interview uh, a number of years back, she shared how she moved from a traditional view of Christianity to what she is calling a progressive interfaith view. So here's her quote. Here's how it started. I was at a funeral of a friend in an Episcopal church. I was sitting next to my very best friend, who is Jewish, and the priest read John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for the first time in my life, I heard those words through the ears of my Jewish friend, my best friend sitting next to me. And I knew then that I had to change my belief. What better quote could there be in describing? I can't reconcile the fact that this is exclusive and this is my friend and he's excluded. Therefore, what do I do? Well, let's not preach the real gospel. Let's change my beliefs. Let's change what the Bible says is true. Let's just ignore those parts of the Bible. So postmodern Christians have grabbed onto this idea, and it's a real idea. The premise is real, that God's love is enormous. It's huge. It's past our understanding. And they've twisted it into something that is an unbeatable force. They've twisted it into, you know, that, that thought experiment of can God create a rock that is bigger, so big that he can't lift it up? This is what they're saying is the rock. God's love is the rock that God can't move. It cannot be tempered by justice. It cannot be tempered by his wrath, his love wins. Have you heard that one? His love wins. 
all the time, in all circumstances. They've twisted this, this wonderful and amazing premise of God's love that we see every day of our life that we are alive. God's love is extended to us because we deserve death, right? So it's true, God's love is enormous, but it's not unbeatable. It is tempered by his justice. God's wrath will only be stayed for so long. God's love stays his own wrath, but it won't last forever. It won't win. The problem is, it sounds so great. It's so enticing to us to think about how everyone could be saved. Everyone could be saved because God's love wins over everything. We don't have to have this exclusive gospel because it feels so much better. It feels so much better for me to think that my neighbor who I've never preached the gospel to doesn't have to go to hell. Mm, I just stepped on a few toes there, sorry. The problem is with that, we, don't, we just don't see support for that in Scripture. It's not there. In fact, we see the opposite. We do see examples of God keeping his wrath at bay, but only for a time. Ultimately, God is just. But here's the good news. In his love, he has provided an escape. So God's justice is perfect, and it will see justice happen. His wrath is coming, but in his love, he provided an escape from his wrath. What was that escape? It wasn't inclusiveness. It was actually exclusiveness. Believe only in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior, Savior only in him and only in his name. No one else. So what's our application here? Well, for Christians who are here today, this morning, we see that the world sees Christians as hateful. They see us as arrogant to claim that we have the one truth. They see this, this, this uh, verse that Susan quoted, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me to the Father except through me. And they see that and they hate us for it. So what do we do? We don't want to be hated. So we're silent, aren't we? I'm stepping on my own toes as well. It's not just yours. This is an indictment against myself. I like being liked. But it's important for us to remember this fact. We don't believe the exclusiveness of the gospel because we were smart enough to think it up. Okay, that would be relying in our own strength, relying in our own wisdom. We don't believe it that way. Who are we relying on? We're relying on the gift of the Holy Spirit who revealed the truth to us. The truth that was there all along, the truth that we can now see. We believe it because our master taught us to believe it. So far from being arrogant, as Christians, we're called to live in humility when we view the enormity of our sin, the fact that our sin has caused a separation between us and God. We look at the enormity of that, and then we see the even infinitely more enormous gift of salvation, and we live in humbleness in that, 
in that light of that. And so as we live in humility and remembering the gospel and how it applies to our own lives, we remember our call to boldly proclaim the gospel at all times, in all situations. And here's the thing. The cost might be high. It might be. Cost might also just be uncomfortable. It may cause fear in us. So what are we afraid of? We're afraid of social martyrdom. We're afraid of being crucified at the, at the feet of social media. We're afraid to lose our respect. We're afraid to lose our standing because it matters what people think about me. So when you do that, when we do that, what we're saying is me is more important than God. My social standing is not worth submitting to God's will. We want to belong. Well, we already talked about that. Belonging to the world means the world loves you. You have a choice. You can be loved by the world or you can be hated by the world. If you're hated by the world, you belong to God's family, though. There might be financial martyrdom. You might lose your job. You might lose your way of living. You might lose your business. Is that, is that a cost you're willing to pay? Are you willing to pay that cost for the sake of the gospel? And in our time, it may come that in the United States, in this area, physical persecution comes. We have been blessed with this incredible lull in our history as the United States where we don't see the same kind of physical persecution that the rest of the world is seeing and that history has shown. That is the norm. What we're living in right now is God's grace. So each choice, whether it's physical, whether it's social, financial, whatever choice it might be in persecution, if we're going to submit to it, if we're going to be accepting it as God-ordained plan, each choice to embrace or reject that persecution means you either reject or embrace the rule of God in your life. So Christians, we are called to submit to the persecution and know that in your weakness, the Holy Spirit fills you with strength. Why? for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. God has ordained you to be in whatever position it is, whatever level of persecution it may be, you are put there for the reason, for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel to those people, whoever they are, no matter their standing. And you're put there to preach the gospel in a way that would be impossible to do otherwise. Persecution has a purpose. Wow, that's weird to think about. God's plan is so good and so perfect that even in something that is meant to cause you harm, is meant for evil, God is saying, no, this is actually for the furthering of my kingdom. 
So take heart in that. I call you Christians. I call myself. I call all of us here. Don't be afraid. Submit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaim the gospel. Worship team, if you want to come up. So then what about non-Christians? I know a lot of you here, but we do have some guests. I don't know where everyone sits. I don't know where everyone stands with God. And I can't know for sure of anyone, even those of you I know really well. So what about you? What is the application in this message? I give you the same message that Peter gave twice, once before being arrested and once after. Repent of your sins. Your sins have caused a separation between you and God that you have no shot of getting past. You have no chance. Salvation is only through Jesus. The wages of your sin is death, eternal death. It's real. It's not something that is just a story to made up to scare kids. Hell is real. So I call, will you throw yourself at the feet of Jesus? Will you trust in him and in him alone and ask him to forgive your sins? No matter the cost, Jesus is the only way to gain eternal life and forgiveness for your sins. Anytime you've lied, anytime you have stolen, anytime you have done anything at all that's a sin, that has earned you death. So trust in Jesus. I can't convince you. I can only trust that the Holy Spirit is going to work in your life. And so that's what I'd like to pray right now. Father, I thank you for this passage, God. I thank you for the example that you've given us through your servant Peter, God, and how we are to react to persecution, God. God, so I ask for my brothers and sisters here who you have saved, God, would you help us to submit to your will in all times, in all areas of our life. Will you help us to then recognize our weakness and to fall in line with your strength? God, would you fill us? Would you fill every part of us with your strength? Not for the purpose of us feeling strong, God, but for the purpose of spreading your gospel to our friends, to our neighbors, to our family. God, make us Christians, make us a church body that reaches out to the lost. God, and for those who are here who are not saved, God, I recognize that it is only by your power that the blindness can be revealed from or removed from their eyes, God. The threat of eternal damnation is real, God. So in your mercy and your grace, would you save them? Cause their hearts to go from being dead to being alive in you. God, move in this place. Cause dead things, dead people to become alive. I pray this in your name. Amen.